Welcome to Everyday Buddhism, making every day better by applying the proven tools found in Buddhist concepts. Welcome to Episode 10 of Everyday Buddhism, making every day better. Today, I'm moving along the Eightfold Path from right action, and remember, right action is not reaction, to the fifth step of the Eightfold Path, commonly referred to as right livelihood. But I like to refer to it as right living. Also entitled for this uh, promotion, it's right living. It's not about what you do. It's about what you think about what you do. You know, I think, and I don't, you know, I don't know how I dare to presume what the Buddha meant. We've talked about this before. But I think the Buddha was speaking more about right living. That's why I like to refer to it as right living, even though I'll probably refer to it as both right livelihood and right living throughout the course of this episode. But I think he was speaking more about right living, not just livelihood or employment or work as we generally think about it. You know, like I mentioned in the last episode on right action, in checking out the resources on right livelihood, you know, I have frequently found sort of a, you know, a big gap uh, uh, about what's written there. It's, it's, I'm either disappointed in the amount of information that they shared in writings and teachings, but also the quality of what is written. You know, not just a rehashing of the discourses. Until recently, much of it didn't seem relatable, didn't really speak to what I think most of us struggle with in our day-to-day working lives. Even the Buddha uh, seemed to teach less about right livelihood than he did other steps on the path. It's probably because many of the recorded sutras and discourses were to the monks whereas right livelihood really does speak to lay people. He's taught less, but he taught the basic concepts, um, but he consistently came back to everything hinges on right view, which is why I said this is about, it's not what you do, but it's about what you think about what you do. You know, I will paraphrase his basic teachings from the middle-length discourses of the Buddha, the, this, I always trip over this word, so bear with me, the Mahayama Nikaya, um, and it's from the translation from the wisdom publications about the middle discourses. Anyway, paraphrasing, he taught that we should avoid livelihoods based on scheming or belittling. That takes a while to think about, but I thought about it again, and I thought, yeah, it sort of applies to politicians and TV commentators, doesn't it? Um, He also taught that we should avoid usury or like a loan shark. And he actually singled out specific professions, of course, that brought harm, including dealing in weapons, dealing in intoxicants and poison, killing, cheating, prostitution, and slavery. His emphasis on right view is clear in his teachings to avoid any livelihood that would be affected by what he referred to as, or what as it's written in the Middle Discourses, 
taints. You know, something is tainted is is something that is uh, that can defile you or contaminate you, or something's ta- tainted. It's a uh, polluted or contaminated. This. So if you're if the Buddha is referring to a livelihood as tainting you or as something that taints, he's talking about it may contribute to more suffering, um, suffering in yourself and others. So he prescribed that anything that taints is something to be avoided. He directed lay people to be skillful and energetic, which I like, to protect their income from thieves, okay, and to have good friends and be generous to them and to live within our means. You know, I think these teachings support my claim that the Buddha was really teaching about right living. This is broader than a narrow focus on work or livelihood or occupations. But he kept talking about right thought, right effort, and right mindfulness as related to this. He said they run and circle around right livelihood. He also made clear that right livelihood is that part of our lives where the Eightfold Path comes together as a focus of practice if we want to be happy in our work. So in other words, what he's saying is we need to know the wisdom teachings, you know, the wisdom teachings of the Eightfold Path, like right thought, right view, mindfulness, concentration, in understanding who we are at work, then we need to have the morality teachings to know how we relate to the work we do and who we work with and for, and then the mental discipline teachings to do it in a way that brings us the most happiness. You know, as a career coach, I work with people every day whose work lives cause them significant unhappiness or stress or maybe just a general dissatisfaction. And I bet just mentioning right livelihood probably makes some of you squirm. Either you question the rightness of your livelihood or your thinking about your livelihood makes you feel stress or disappointed in yourself. You know, if you're like most of us, including me many times throughout my life, it seems that, you know, life is like this. It's work, pay the bills, sleep, then work, pay the bills, sleep, work, lather, rinse, repeat. You know, and today, studies and also my own role as a career coach demonstrate that millions of Americans experience at least some degree of job dissatisfaction. You know, corporations continue to downsize, and what that means is upsizing of the stress on employees, right, with more work, you know, more frequent deadline pressure, because less people to do the job, but but yet more service level performance measures that need to be met. And then there's that combination of job insecurity. You know, I don't know about your particular circumstances, but I imagine many of my listeners feel their jobs just aren't fulfilling. Or worse, they're stressful, they're exhausting. Either you aren't able to engage your creativity or your skills and abilities or your boss and coworkers are demanding or worse, unfriendly or aggressive. Or if you're an entrepreneur like me, even if you are the boss, can set your own hours, you may be stressed by 
not enough or too much work, not enough income, or finding out what you thought you'd be doing as your own boss is not at all what you're doing. Instead, you're doing administration work, right? And also, as someone who's their own boss with my own business, there's this constant sort of moral wondering about, am I fair to clients and my service fees and what I provide? Am I fair to myself and giving more to my clients than what I'm getting back in an income? See, there are a lot of big questions at play, especially in what our economy has become. It's become a service economy. And that's the predominant driver in the overall American economy, I think. And it's attracted many entrepreneurs, solopreneurs, due to the relative ease of you know starting an internet service business or even starting an internet product business. But what that means then, see all the, these things all build on themselves. And that means it's competition. So all these people rush to the internet to become entrepreneurs or solopreneurs, and then they're competing with all these other people. And competition brings about that yeek feeling about right livelihood. You know, marketing to attract a client base, but marketing that gives something to clients or potential clients or prospective clients without giving away the whole store. And how do you be competitive without you know, dragging the other through the mud. There are so many questions. But it's not just entrepreneurs, you know, as an employee, manager, business owner, or entrepreneur, we all face difficult questions about our work. You know, questions like, how can we earn enough money to engage in work we enjoy without sacrificing our peace of mind, sacrificing our health, sacrificing our spiritual values? How can we contribute our unique talents without harming other beings or harming the environment? And how can we avoid the endless cycle of speed and greed, right? That is our cultural pace and tone of today's market-driven economy. The decision of a right livelihood or a right profession today carries a burden of these kind of continuous questions and, you know, sort of moral nagging and doubts. Life was probably much simpler in some ways in the time of the Buddha, like 2,600 years ago. You know, but I think we need to cut ourselves some slack and resign ourselves to the fact that no matter what profession we choose, Every one of them comes with a messy mix of good and bad consequences. Yet, our jobs offer us the opportunity to practice by trying to maximizing the good we can contribute and minimizing the bad. You know, we can't run away from our connection to the rest of the world, especially today in this global economy. But we can continually ask ourselves if we are doing time you know, sort of like doing prison time, working for our economic security? Or are we working to become the person that will provide security to more than just ourselves? Not just in what we contribute to our work, but in the way in which we contribute to all those our work touches on and off the job. 
We have to move away from thinking about work as what we have or what we are becoming on our progression up the ladder to how and who we are being with our work at our week, at our work. You know, are we being authentic? Are we being mindful? This probably makes you think of robe monastics sitting in meditation or doing walking meditation as the example of right livelihood, baking bread, you know, chopping wood, carrying water. But no, it's not necessary necessary to be a monk to carry out the Buddha's intention. If you think about it, really, why did the Buddha address right livelihood in the first place? A monk is really not concerned with that. A monk's livelihood was about begging and meditating and keeping ethical behavior. So right livelihood, the the actual teaching of right livelihood is primarily a teaching towards the lay population. And in our culture, in the West, most Buddhist practitioners like you and I, we're householders, you know, we're not monks. We're just trying to incorporate the teachings of, you know, right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood in our day-to-day world. You know, in thinking about right livelihood, I think most of us immediately think of it as about what livelihood, right? What career? What industry? What function should I do? Like a career, should I devote myself to a career delivering social change or ethics within business populations or environmental stability or more of a creative work that allows a direct expression of our individual passions and talents? Or maybe it's about a good job for a fair wage. You know, a listener of this podcast actually wrote to me to say, ask this question, and it was about right livelihood. She wrote, is there a way to think about how we choose to make a living? She adds that she's made a career of working in the nonprofit world, but is still struggling with the person for whom she works. You know, that is such a good question, and it does expand the focus on what I was talking about. It's not about necessarily what profession, what work we choose, or even what company we choose. But once we're there, how do we think about it? How do we behave? Right livelihood implies implies way more than just the occupation, but also your intention, what you bring to the job, its employees, your managers, customers, and your thoughts when you're there. And your thoughts about it when you're not there. If anything, you know, if if anything creates negative thoughts from your relationship with the job and what, what the job does or the relationship with the people with whom you work, if anything negative results from that, then that is a reason to think about it. That is a reason to look with right view and write thoughts, and question your view, your thoughts, and your intention. I would suggest that right livelihood isn't just about how we earn the money, but about finding not just the right occupation, but the right lifestyle and attitude that will further great work 
or right work by you and others? That sort of answers the listener's question, but I want to go into this farther and I will touch on it as I uh, explain other things as well as answer another listener's question. So as I mentioned before, the Buddha emphasized that right livelihood is the aspect where all parts of the Eightfold Path come together. You know, that's pretty impressive when you think about it. There's very little written about it, yet this is this is sort of the stage in which we practice the Eightfold Path. We practice it in our work. This is where our practice can really be pumped up, right? But I don't think we think about that generally. I know I didn't. You know, as a student, now teacher and lay minister with the Bright Dawn Center of Oneness Buddhism, the focus was on everyday spirituality and everyday suchness. And I came to connect what lay ministry meant and what it meant to me and what it meant in my work. So instead of trying to like imitate monastic practice, my unique value is in the practice I did in life as a householder, or more correctly, as someone who works for a living. So thinking about, okay, um, I have this work that I do with with clients in, in working with them in their careers, but I also have this commitment as a Buddhist teacher and a lay minister. So I, I saw how that, that was a perfect combination, although it can be a perfect combination for you too. You don't have to be a lay minister or Buddhist teacher. If you try to live the Eightfold Path, then if you try to live it in combination with what you do in your workplace, then that you can arrive at the same sort of aha that I did. I had an aha that my lay life could build a perfect practice. My work life could contribute to the greater good um, because it could be a perfect vehicle for me to try to live the Dharma. You know, for most of us, work is the golden opportunity to walk the walk, not just talk the talk. We spend most of our waking hours at work. This is where we are presented with all the tough choices about right view, right intention, right speech, right action. This is where we can most easily practice mindfulness. I know I said it, where we can most easily practice mindfulness, but we are most likely not to. Which touches on another listener who wrote, this listener whose name is Kevin said, at present and for some time now, I struggle in the work environment to practice skillful thought, speech, and action. And he added that he'd like me to continue sharing on how to apply Buddhist principles in the workplace. You know, how to sit with fears of failure, inferiority, frustration with others, He really emphasized that he thought we needed mindfulness in the workplace badly. Not just for himself, but he thought everyone did. You know, I I absolutely agree. And that's what I said. I think mindfulness, uh, the workplace is the perfect place to practice mindfulness. I will start, you know, trying to answer both listeners by reminding again the emphasis the Buddha put on right view and right intention. A lot of this has to do with what I shared about how I needed my own change of perspective to see how my work 
could become my perfect Dharma practice. Remember, the practice is not just the what activity or organization you're contributing to, but the how you are contributing to the people you work with. As a career coach, you know, I work with clients on a weekly basis who struggle with their bosses and their coworkers. Many times when we look at their particular situations together, we try to diffuse sort of the emotions that they are holding around their workplace. So many people hold so, so much anger, disappointment, frustration, all sorts of stuff that they feel they can't express around their work, the situations at work, and the people they work with. And so my job is diffusing those frustrations, diffusing those angers, trying to lead them away from a subjective understanding of sort of me versus him or her, you know, the him or her being the work, the coworker or the boss, to a bigger perspective that includes an understanding of maybe why that obnoxious boss or coworker is the way they are. How did they become obnoxious? Look at them without the sense that what they're doing is having a direct effect on you. With a bigger perspective, you can look at it with, without a charged emotion. And looking more at the situation sort of as a movie or a book with no subjective buy-in. My clients typically see, after using this technique, they see these things differently which then interrupts or, or stops the stories they'll, they tell themselves about their workplace. And it enables them to try to create a right livelihood out of the work they've been given. In other words, instead of trying to escape the situation, they reframe it. This is sort of the, you know, wanting what we already have versus wanting what we don't have. And one of the ways we can do that is to transform our work life into a spiritual practice. If we can begin to view work without clinging to a personal or selfish sense of what we need, what we want, what we deserve, then we can practice adapting an attitude of dynamic acceptance, which transcends that small view of my boss is a jerk, right? Your boss or your coworker may indeed be a jerk. I've worked with them, I know. I even have clients who I consider jerks sometimes. But when we apply that right view of interconnectedness, right, and the right intention and the right speech and the right action, it tends to transform that sense of seeing that boss, coworker, or particular situation as something out to get us. And it transform our, transforms our work into a spiritual practice. It is in asking the hard questions and making the tough decisions about skillful means. Remember, I mentioned that in the last episode, skillful means or upaya, in interacting with bosses and coworkers and in balancing or juggling time and money that arise in family and work life, this is the practice. It is this very struggle, this noble struggle, if you will, 
That is our practice. You know, I, I frequently hear Buddhists express, oh, they wish they could go on a three-year retreat or become a monk or some other daydream that makes them feel that they would be true practitioner, practitioners, true Buddhists and better people, right? Or learning to be better people. And at the same time, I hear coaching clients wish they weren't working in the not-for-profit field or wish they were working in the for-profit field. Sometimes those in the not-for-profit wish that the bottom line didn't matter so much and that they were really in there helping people they were supposed to be helping. And those in the for-profit seems to think that the not-for-profit is the grass is only greener, but then of course they realize that they might not get paid as much. So there's that. And then, you know, I, I had a client recently who told me, you know, where's the human in human resources? You know, the, all they care about is metrics and bottom line. You know, we'll always find something wrong on the job. Unless we have but unless we have the right awareness of the suffering, stress, or disease our work is meant to sort of help, we won't see the meaning in it. As David Brazier says in The Feeling Buddha, right livelihood is not just a question of doing the right job. It is also a matter of consciousness of what that job really means. We need to do what we need to do, but we need to do it mindfully, fully connected to our inner wisdom that will enable to us to see every opportunity we can find to benefit others and avoid every opportunity to, have, to create harm for others. In the book Compass of Zen by the Korean Zen master Sean San, he says our inside job is keeping a clear mind and our outside job is cutting off selfish desires and helping others. Boy, I think if we could remember that in our workplace, it would make such a difference. I, I tell you, I probably wouldn't have coaching clients if that was the case. See, we need to think this when engaged in any activity. We need to think, am I doing this for myself or am I doing this for others? even if the others is our own family or keeping a pet fed. Because we know from the Dharma that everything and everyone is interconnected and that there are no self-existent causes or identities. Then if we can remember that all the time, then we can remember that everything we do is related to others. Typically, though, when we're on the job and dealing with our jerky boss or our jerky coworker or our jerky customer, what we think is they are doing this to me, making my working life a living hell. But see, a switch in thinking, even a momentary switch, even though it sounds ridiculous, makes a huge difference. Yes, it can be done. You know, one, one of the lessons about right livelihood that really struck me I call it, uh, these are the kind of teachings I call in-your-face teachings. Um, this came from Geshe Kelsang Gyatso, and he wrote a commentary called Meaningful to Behold. It was a commentary on the way of the Bodhisattva, which I've told you before is my favorite book, also the Dalai Lama's favorite book. He writes, quote, Some people think that they will practice the Dharma once they have finished with their worldly business. 
This is a mistaken attitude because our work in the world never finishes. Work is like a ripple of water continually moving on the surface of the ocean. It is very difficult to break free from our occupations in order to practice Dharma. The busy work with which we fill our lives is only completed at the time of our death, unquote. Now let's think about that a little bit. In our trying to escape our work for doing something better, different, whatever, we're not actually looking at the field that we're on where we can actually do something that makes a difference within that workplace. So let's talk about what we do, quote unquote. What do you do? And how tied to your title or what you do are you? How much of your identity comes from it? I bet if you were laid off or fired, you could answer that. This is getting to the area of speaking to um, feeling insufficient or those sort of things that one of my listeners asked. You know, what we do really has a bearing on how we feel about ourselves and how we feel about ourselves has a bearing on how we act towards others. You know, I can um, relate to that feeling from my experience, both from my experience coaching unemployed and underemployed clients and from a personal experience I had. You know, back in the late 1980s and early 1990s, I went through a sort of a crisis of identity. And it was, I call it a crisis of not doing. You know, I had recently been forced by a chronic autoimmune disease, systemic lupus, uh, to leave a successful career in television broadcasting. Now, I was 39 years old, young, and I had been a television engineer since I was 20, even younger. So nearly 20 years. So I didn't know anything about myself as an adult if I wasn't a television engineer. That was my identity. Like many people, that was who I connected, I, who I was. It was my identity was directly connected to what I did rather than who I was. But I thought that's who I was. And something more powerful and bigger than myself took that away from me, that illness. Combined with the blow of a loss of that occupational identity and the loss of income was this sort of missing productivity. I had nothing to do. In our society, doing is being. Our days and nights are scheduled like 24-7 high-volume manufacturing operations. With our value as, as selves reflected back to us by our capacity for doing and our ability for continuous delivery, just like the metrics in manufacturing and operations. So here I was faced with non-scheduled days, zero output, zero input, and zero income. My whole being was in question. And the more I fought that stillness and that lack of that I'm anything, the sicker I became. No, I did not get better by not working because I was so caught up in who I wasn't. It is at that point, sort of anything, I can't, I don't know how to describe it. I describe it as my authentic self, my true being, maybe my Buddha nature began to whisper, then shout to me to get my attention. 
This whispering sort of came as teachings from myself to myself. They, they were like lessons. They began in January 1992 as like interruptions, right, in our, my daily journal. I was a lifelong journal keeper. I confide my physical pain, my guilt, my angers, you know, my sadness, my regret, my desires, and my wishes to the blank pages of every new journal. It was very self-absorbed, very ego-focused. But in January 1992, faced with this stillness, this non-doing, which I equated with non-being, something else started writing through my journal, sort of like a mistuned radio, sort of interfered with what I thought I was writing about to become something else. The thing that got my attention was, and I didn't, I felt as if I didn't write it, but I know I did, there was nothing to find that you weren't given when you were born. That's what I wrote. Now, when I heard, when I read that back, after writing it myself, it was saying everything I ever needed was giving, given to me when I was born. So it took away that sense of lack. And it was a reassurance that I received. And all the lessons after that were continual reassurances. And they continued to encourage me to enjoy the slowing down, enjoy the looking at who I was rather than who I wasn't. And so I recognized or discovered something inside of myself that I hadn't been in touch with in a long, long time. You can call it my true self, my authentic self, my Buddha nature, whatever. But I, what I found or discovered was a peace through this slowing down. And in the slowing down, it sort of reconnected me to things I wanted to be or was when I was a child, hidden behind the person and people I tried to become in the work world. In looking through the eyes of that child, I remembered sort of all sorts of things from my past. I remember lying in the bed as a five-year-old child, li waiting for a special friend. A little wizard would fly out from between the ballerinas in my pink and gold wallpaper. I, my little imaginary friend. But with that imaginary friend was a wizard. I think it came from like the uh, Jiminy Cricket thing. They had a little top hat and everything. So this little wizard would fly out of my wallpaper and he would come to visit bringing shelves of big, beautiful leather-bound books in gold leaf filled with the secrets of the universe. This is what I thought. And they would hover somewhere midair above me lying in my bed. Now, I remember thinking that I must have been too young to understand the books because when I would reach up to grab one off the shelves, the shelves the books, and the wizard disappeared. But as my own personal myth, the wizard's promise was kept. My wizard, who I now refer to as Manjushri, the Bodhisattva, representing wisdom or insight, reappeared 34 years later in those journal teachings after I got sick. When I slowed down enough to hear, Manjushri then revealed a secret to me. The secret that was revealed was, I am does not equal I do. So maybe the problem with equating ourselves with what we do is that it's about what we do, right? It's about what I do. It's not about what we do. It's about what I do. When what I do 
means who I am, then who I am is immediately positioning me against the other. It's of self versus other. You know, we know we aren't the boss and we are aware that there are those below us. So we immediately position ourselves in the situation of feeling inferior, feeling superior. You know, Gene Smith, um, in the Beginner's Guide to Walking the Eightfold Path, <clears throat> refers to it as, quote, a competitive sport, not a cooperative one. And even infants are pushed into the struggle to line up years ahead for the right kindergarten so they'll be on the right track for that right title when they grow up. See, that's the complication. That's the complication to I am equals what I do. What we do today seems to be completely removed from any direct connection to the resultant goodness. It's the, it's the way of our world. It wasn't like this back in the time of the Buddha. You know, back in the time of the Buddha, work was working the fields, growing, growing, uh, growing crops, taking care of animals. You know, there was a direct cause and effect. You knew that what you did provided goodness for yourself and others. So, but I think the biggest challenge today is that we're so removed from any good that comes from what we do. We look for these shallow titles and other areas to make ourselves feel better about what we do. Now, we are not a simple society or a small village. We're a global economy. We rarely see that we are contributing anything useful with our work. So what we end up feeling is, that we work for our money or the mortgage payment, the car bill, the health insurance bill. See, what we see then, it, it becomes a utilitarian uh, money to do this because we have to do this. We have to have our health insurance, but it's certainly not a sense of con contribution to greater good. So as Gene Smith says, if, if, you know, is there any value to anything? If there were, would the price of gold rise and fall? So, so how we can how can we equate our value to these things that are now all about monetary value, including ourselves and our job? It's all in the hands of the supply and demand economy. Yet somehow we feel that lack of value, or we feel that we're better than others because we make more money, or we're better than others because it, we determine it by the cars we drive, the clothes we wear, or we're less than others by the cars we drive, the clothes we wear, the houses we live in, the stuff we have, right? And sometimes we take jobs and buy things to maintain some kind of image. This is why I think so many of us feel dead or alienated on this part of the path, this right livelihood. But if we remembered it all hinges on right view, it might make a difference. Applying the Buddha's wisdom teachings on impermanence and a lack of permanent self sort of collapses that certainty of I am what I do. You know, we aren't permanent. We don't have a discrete selves. We've been over this right in my podcast episodes. So if we start equating, if we start thinking of a discrete self, then of course we're going to have the discrete sense of then I am what I do, right? Tony Packer, you, he's, she's a famous uh, 
a Buddhist teacher, actually a Zen teacher. She used to uh, teach at the Rochester Zen Center right here where I live and now teaches pretty close in Springwater, New York, or I don't, I think she still teaches there. She was quoted in Claude Whitmire's book, Mindfulness and Meaningful Work. Quote, when I realized that the question, what is right livelihood, arises out of the idea or feeling of being a separate entity with its inevitable feelings of insecurity, insufficiency, discontent, guilt, loneliness, fear, and wanting, doesn't it follow inevitably that I yearn for a livelihood that will compensate me for what I feel is lacking or hurting inside? When our habitual ideas and feelings of separation begin to abate in a more of a silent questioning, listening, and understanding, then right livelihood ceases to be a problem. It sort of is, that sort of illustrates what happened to me when I took the time or when the time was forced upon me to do silent questioning, silent listening, I wasn't so worried about who I wasn't anymore. You know, and I even think I shared with you in an earlier podcast that even the who I was and how I did Buddhist practice in my life became an issue too that tormented me. All I could think about was when I was practicing in the Tibetan uh, tradition, was that I couldn't do Vajrayana practice. I just couldn't do it. And how I couldn't do those days and weeks of meditation on silent retreats. So all I could think about was that I was a personal failure. So essentially I was grasping at what I wasn't. But then I had an awakening of sorts. I was able to see the connection between my personal life and my work life. And the actual evolution or perfect design, if you will, of my life as my practice. I started being able to see that you don't need to go anywhere, do anything different to practice than what you are doing. Just bring the practice to what you need to do. So I started being able to view my life and my work as a career coach as my monk's duties, right? As my uh, uh, perfect practitioner's duties. See, we are clearly not living in a time where our choices are simple. Yet that shouldn't be an excuse to not to try, right? We need to take, or try to take, small steps, looking for every tiny opportunity to practice right livelihood, in our time at work, and in our off time. Even the smallest right choice can make a great big difference. We can make choices about what jobs we take, of course, but also in this very interconnected right living way, not just right livelihood way, we can think about the other jobs or livelihoods we support, right? Through our purchase of cars, clothes, food, and investments. We can think about the consequences of buying the cheapest item if it was produced in a sweatshop, or if our purchases or investments are contributing to the destruction of a rainforest or the extinction of a a species. Or we can look at products made in other countries 
and know that if their c- countries continually violate human rights, we can choose not to buy those products. Does this mean we have to do it all at once? Absolutely not. You know, our culture, our economy, it's complex. It takes a dogged persistence to investigate, evaluate, and make good choices. It also takes time to overcome our own habits and desires of wanting what we want, right? We can contribute to changes in the world related to right livelihood, not just our own, but others. You know, we saw it in the lives of shareholder withdrawal during the collapse of apartheid in South Africa. And we saw it when environmental groups actually eliminated the use of styrofoam in fast food chains. So we do have the opportunities to contribute to white right work, even if it's not our own right work. You know, in the heart of the Buddhist teachings, Titnat Han said, quote, everything we do contributes to our effort to practice right livelihood. It is more than just the way we earn our pay- paycheck. He says, uh, no, he says that if we, if we can't practice right livelihood 100%, then we must resolve to go in the direction of reducing suffering and increasing compassion. And he says, to resolve to help create a society where there is more right livelihood and less wrong, li- wrong livelihood. He says that to practice right livelihood means we practice right mindfulness. And there it is again, the connection to mindfulness and right thought and right view. You know, the way you answer the phone at work embodies right livelihood. The way you talk to a client or coworker, the way you file a file in the filing folder is a demonstration of how you feel about right livelihood. The way you walk to and from a meeting the way we act in a meeting. You know, do we try, do we honestly try to take care of our coworkers and customers? Or are we thinking we better just do our job? You know, do we live in ways that help others be peaceful and happy? Do we live in ways that help ourselves be peaceful and happy? This sounds simple, but this is right livelihood. This is right right livelihood and right living, as I called it. To start, you know, ask yourself, beyond work even, how do you spend your free time? From a right living approach, our time is part of our wealth, right? We have very little time. And and every day, every year, it gets seemingly smaller and smaller, even though that can't happen. But part of Buddhist generosity is the giving of our time not just sharing of our dollars. So ask yourself, do you spend your free time entertaining yourself primarily, making yourself chill, making yourself happy, escaping? Or are you also spending some time contributing to your own or others' enrichment and fulfillment? You know, are you just taking care of yourself through meditation and sitting, through exercise, through creative endeavors? Or are you spending your time with your family and friends? Are you taking a course? Are you helping out at a church, a Dharma center, a community center, or in a volunteer activity? See, we will each find a unique formula or pyramid of activities that would work for us. But whatever your individual distribution of time at work and off work, 
your life needs to be more than just work, right? Or if you are forced economically to work most of the time, then try to be as mindful as possible while you're there. You know, in Mindfulness and Meaningful Work, Claude Whitmire writes, quote, the most important step in building support for right livelihood is giving back more than you get. It's not really a matter of keeping track in some kind of ledger book. It's more a function of your attitude, the attitude that you adopt in caring for yourself and those around you. The key is to be active about it. Look for opportunities to cooperate. See, we need to have this view. Be teachers of this view. We need to help sort of establish a shift in our society, sort of from people committed to working together rather than just working to do what feels good for ourselves. We need to, as David Brazier says, um, be people committed to a new view, a non-alienated, non-alienated and non-alienating approach to all parts of our life. He says we must spend our time doing meaningful things and most importantly, experience it as meaningful. You know, this can be done by working together, by sharing in a community or hospitality setting, by sharing with our coworkers, by sharing through generosity of our time in helping a coworker out in figuring something out that they can't figure out or they're having trouble with, trouble with. There's a lot of ways we can do this, but it's the main thing is right view. Are we working for ourselves or others? You know, we can create, I firmly believe we can create this kind of community or society by being an integral part of it, by kicking it off, even in our workplace, even if it's the most negative workplace we are involved in one little sort of contribution of unselfishness to another coworker on the job can make a change with other people. First of all, it will change the way that coworker sees things. And then that coworker may change how he interacts with the next coworker. When you do these sort of things, you are practicing the Buddha's teaching of the emptiness of self, right? That's the right view and the interconnection of all beings. To summarize, what makes our work, our livelihood, our lives right may not be about the nature so much of the work or the nature of the industry or the nature of what we do on the job, but of the qualities we bring in our hearts and minds You know, the quality of our heart, the quality of our mind, the quality of our intentions, what we bring to work, how we see things, how we feel. For now, I'll close and say that's it for today's episode. Thank you, as always, for joining me. Thank you for contributing your questions. I very much appreciate it, and please do it again. And if you like this podcast, please consider supporting the work through ratings, reviews, or donation on my website at everyday-buddhism.com. And until next time, keep making your everydays better. <laughs>